With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Chapter 10. Part 1 of 2. Connie was a good deal alone now. Fewer people came to Ragby. Clifford no longer wanted them. He had turned against even the cronies. He was queer. He preferred the radio, which he had installed at some expense, with a good deal of success at last. He could sometimes get Madrid or Frankfurt, even there in the uneasy Midlands. And he would sit alone for hours, listening to the loudspeaker bellowing forth, It amazed and stunned Connie, but there he would sit with a blank, entranced expression on his face, like a person losing his mind, and listen, or seem to listen, to the unspeakable thing. Was he really listening, or was it a sort of soporific he took, whilst something else worked on underneath in him? Connie did not know. She fled up to her room or out of doors to the wood. A kind of terror filled her sometimes, a terror of the incipient insanity of the whole civilized species. But now that Clifford was drifting off to this other weirdness of industrial activity, becoming almost a creature with a hard, efficient shell of an exterior and a pulpy interior, one of the amazing crabs and lobsters of the modern industrial and financial world, invertebrates of the crustacean order with shells of steel like machines and inner bodies of soft pulp. Connie herself was really completely stranded. She was not even free, for Clifford must have her there. He seemed to have a nervous terror that she should leave him. The curious, pulpy part of him, the emotional and humanly individual part, depended on her with terror like a child, almost like an idiot. She must be there, there at Ragby, a Lady Chatterley, his wife. Otherwise he would be lost like an idiot on a moor. This amazing dependence Connie realized with a sort of horror. She heard him with his pit managers, with the members of his board, with young scientists, and she was amazed at his shrewd insight into things, his power, his uncanny material power over what is called practical men. He had become a practical man himself, and an amazingly astute and powerful one, a master. Connie attributed it to Mrs. Bolton's influence upon him just at the crisis in his life. But this astute and practical man was almost an idiot when left alone to his own emotional life. He worshipped Connie. She was his wife, a higher being, and he worshipped her with a queer, craven idolatry, like a savage, a worship based on enormous fear and even hate of the power of the idol the dread idol. All he wanted was for Connie to swear, to swear not to leave him, not to give him away. Clifford, she said to him, but this was after she had the key to the hut. 
Would you really like me to have a child one day? He looked at her with a furtive apprehension in his rather prominent pale eyes. I shouldn't mind if it made no difference between us, he said. No difference to what? she asked. To you and me, to our love for one another. If it's going to affect that, then I'm all against it. Why, I might even one day have a child of my own. She looked at him in amazement. I mean, it might come back to me one of these days. She still stared in amazement, and he was uncomfortable. So you would not like it if I had a child, she said. I tell you, he replied quickly, like a cornered dog, I am quite willing, provided it doesn't touch your love for me. If it would touch that, I am dead against it. Connie could only be silent in cold fear and contempt. Such talk was really the gabbling of an idiot. He no longer knew what he was talking about. Oh, it wouldn't make any difference to my feeling for you, she said with a certain sarcasm. There, he said, that is the point. In that case, I don't mind in the least. I mean, it would be awfully nice to have a child running about the house and feel one was building up a future for it. I should have something to strive for then, and I should know it was your child, shouldn't I, dear? And would it seem just the same as my own? Because it is you who count in these matters. You know that, don't you, dear? I don't enter. I am a cipher. You are the great I am, as far as life goes. You know that, don't you? I mean, as far as I am concerned, I mean, but for you I am absolutely nothing. I live for your sake and your future. I am nothing to myself. Connie heard it all with deepening dismay and repulsion. It was one of the ghastly half-truths that poison human existence. What man in his senses would say such things to a woman? But men aren't in their senses. What man with a spark of honor would put this ghastly burden of life responsibility upon a woman and leave her there in the void? Moreover, in half an hour's time, Connie heard Clifford talking to Mrs. Bolton in a hot, impulsive voice, revealing himself in a sort of passionless passion to the woman, as if she were half-mistress, half-foster-mother to him. And Mrs. Bolton was carefully dressing him in evening clothes, for there were important business guests in the house. Connie really sometimes felt she would die at this time. She felt she was being crushed to death by weird lies and by the amazing cruelty of idiocy. Clifford's strange business efficiency in a way overawed her, and his declaration of private worship put her into a panic. There was nothing between them. She never even touched him nowadays, and he never touched her. He never even took her hand and held it kindly. No. And because they were so utterly out of touch, he tortured her with his declaration of idolatry. It was the cruelty of utter impotence. And she felt her reason would give way or she would die. She fled as much as possible to the wood, One afternoon, as she sat brooding, watching the water bubbling coldly in John's well, the keeper had strode up to her. I got you a key made, my lady, he said, saluting, and he offered her the key. Thank you so much, she said, startled. The hut's not very tidy, if you don't mind, he said. I cleared it what I could. "'But I didn't want you to trouble,' she said. "'Oh, it wasn't any trouble. "'I'm setting the hens in about a week, "'but they won't be scared of you. "'I shall have to see them morning and night, "'but I shan't bother you any more than I can help.' "'Why, 
"'You wouldn't bother me,' she pleaded. "'I'd rather not go to the hut at all "'if I am going to be in the way.' "'He looked at her with his keen blue eyes. "'He seemed kindly but distant. "'But at least he was sane and wholesome, "'if even he looked thin and ill. "'A cough troubled him. "'You have a cough,' she said. "'Nothing a cold.' The last pneumonia left me with a cough, but it's nothing. He kept distant from her and would not come any nearer. She went fairly often to the hut, in the morning or in the afternoon, but he was never there. No doubt he avoided her on purpose. He wanted to keep his own privacy. He had made the hut tidy, put the little table and chair near the fireplace, left a little pile of kindling and small logs, and put the tools and traps away as far as possible, effacing himself. Outside by the clearing, he had built a low little roof of boughs and straw, a shelter for the birds, and under it stood the live coops. And one day when she came, she found two brown hens sitting alert and fierce in the coops, sitting on pheasants' eggs and fluffed out so proud and deep in all the heat of the pondering female blood. This almost broke Connie's heart. She herself was so forlorn and unused, not a female at all, just a mere thing of terrors. Then all the live coops were occupied by hens, three brown and a gray and a black. All alike, they clustered themselves down on the eggs in the soft, nestling ponderosity of the female urge, the female nature, fluffing out their feathers. And with brilliant eyes they watched Connie as she crouched before them, and they gave short, sharp clocks of anger and alarm, but chiefly of female anger at being approached. Connie found corn in the corn bin in the hut. She offered it to the hens in her hand. They would not eat it. Only one hen pecked at her hand with a fierce little jab, so Connie was frightened, but she was pining to give them something, the brooding mothers who neither fed themselves nor drank. She brought water in a little tin and was delighted when one of the hens drank. Now she came every day to the hens. They were the only things in the world that warmed her heart. Clifford's protestations made her go cold from head to foot. Mrs. Bolton's voice made her go cold and the sound of the businessmen who came. An occasional letter from Michaelis affected her with the same sense of chill. She felt she would surely die if it lasted much longer. Yet it was spring, and the bluebells were coming in the wood, and the leaf buds on the hazels were opening like the spatter of green rain. How terrible it was that it should be spring, and everything cold-hearted, cold-hearted. Only the hens, fluffed so wonderfully on the eggs, were warm with their hot, brooding female bodies. Connie felt herself living on the brink of fainting all the time. Then, one day, a lovely, sunny day with great tufts of primroses under the hazels and many violets dotting the paths, she came in the afternoon to the coops, and there was one tiny... Tiny perky chicken, tinily prancing round in front of a coop, and the mother hen clucking in terror. The slim little chick was grayish-brown with dark markings, and it was the most alive little spark of a creature in seven kingdoms at that moment. Connie crouched to watch in a sort of ecstasy. Life! Life, pure, sparky, fearless, new life, new life, so 
tiny and so utterly without fear. Even when it scampered a little, scrambling into the coop again and disappeared under the hen's feather in answer to the mother hen's wild alarm cries, it was not really frightened. It took it as a game, the game of living. For in a moment a tiny, sharp head was poking through the golden-brown feathers of the hen and eyeing the cosmos. Connie was fascinated, and at the same time, never had she felt so acutely the agony of her own female forlornness. It was becoming unbearable. She had only one desire now, to go to the clearing in the wood. The rest was a kind of painful dream. But sometimes she was kept all day at Ragby by her duties as hostess. And then she felt as if she too were going blank, just blank and insane. One evening, guests or no guests, she escaped after tea. It was late, and she fled across the park like one who fears to be called back. The sun was setting rosy as she entered the wood, but she pressed on among the flowers. The light would last long overhead. She arrived at the clearing flushed and semi-conscious. The keeper was there in his shirt sleeves, just closing up the coops for the night so the little occupants would be safe. But still one little trio was pattering about on tiny feet, alert, drab mites, under the straw shelter, refusing to be called in by the anxious mother. I had to come and see the chickens, she said, panting, glancing shyly at the keeper, almost unaware of him. Are there any more? Thirty-six so far, he said. Not bad. He took a curious pleasure in watching the young things come out. Connie crouched in front of the last coop. The three chicks had run in, but still their cheeky heads came poking sharply through the yellow feathers, then withdrawing, then only one beady little head eyeing forth from the vast mother body. I'd love to touch them, she said, putting her fingers gingerly through the bars of the coop. But the mother hen pecked at her hand fiercely, and Connie drew back, startled and frightened. How she pecks at me! She hates me, she said in a wondering voice. But I wouldn't hurt them. The man standing above her laughed and crouched down beside her, knees apart, and put his hand with quiet confidence slowly into the coop. The old hen pecked at him, but not so savagely. And slowly, softly, with sure, gentle fingers, he felt among the old bird's feathers and drew out a faintly peeping chick in his closed hand. There, he said, holding out his hand to her. She took the little drab thing between her hands, and there it stood, on its impossible little stalks of legs, its atom of balancing life trembling through its almost weightless feet into Connie's hands. But it lifted its handsome, clean-shaped little head boldly and looked sharply round and gave a little peep. So adorable, so cheeky, she said softly. The keeper, squatting beside her, was also watching with an amused face the bold little bird in her hands. Suddenly, he saw a tear fall onto her wrist. And he stood up and stood away, moving to the other coop, for suddenly he was aware of the old flame shooting and leaping up in his loins that he had hoped was quiescent forever. He fought against it, turning his back to her, but it leapt, and leapt downwards, circling in his knees. 
He turned again to look at her. She was kneeling and holding her two hands slowly forward, blindly, so that the chicken should run into the mother hen again. And there was something so mute and forlorn in her, compassion flamed in his bowels for her. Without knowing, he came quickly towards her and crouched beside her again, taking the chick from her hands because she was afraid of the hen and putting it back in the coop. At the back of his loins, the fire suddenly darted stronger. He glanced apprehensively at her. Her face was averted and she was crying blindly in all the anguish of her generation's forlornness. His heart melted suddenly like a drop of fire, and he put out his hand and laid his fingers on her knee. You shouldn't cry, he said softly. But then she put her hands over her face and felt that really her heart was broken and nothing mattered any more. He laid his hand on her shoulder and softly... Gently, it began to travel down the curve of her back, blindly, with a blind stroking motion to the curve of her crouching loins. And there, his hand softly, softly stroked the curve of her flank in the blind, instinctive caress. She had found her scrap of handkerchief and was blindly trying to dry her face. Shall you come to the hut, he said in a quiet, neutral voice. And closing his hand softly on her upper arm, he drew her up and led her slowly to the hut, not letting go of her till she was inside. Then he cleared aside the chair and table and took a brown soldier's blanket from the tool chest, spreading it slowly. She glanced at his face as she stood motionless. His face was pale and without expression like that of a man submitting to fate. You lie there, he said softly, and he shut the door so that it was dark. Quite dark. With a queer obedience, she lay down on the blanket. Then she felt the soft, groping, helplessly desirous hand touching her body, feeling for her face. The hand stroked her face softly, softly with infinite soothing and assurance, and at last there was the soft touch of a kiss on her cheek. She lay quite still in a sort of sleep, in a sort of dream. Then she quivered as she felt his hand groping softly, yet with queer thwarted clumsiness among her clothing. Yet the hand knew, too, how to unclothe her where it wanted. He drew down the thin silk sheath slowly, carefully, right down and over her feet. Then with a quiver of exquisite pleasure he touched the warm, soft body and touched her navel for a moment in a kiss. And he had to come into her at once to enter the peace on earth of her soft, quiescent body. It was the moment of pure peace for him, the entry into the body of the woman. She lay still in a kind of sleep, always in a kind of sleep. The activity, the orgasm was his, all his. She could strive for herself no more. Even the tightness of his arms round her, even the intense movement of his body and the springing of his seed in her was a kind of sleep from which she did not begin to rouse till he had finished and lay softly panting against her breast.
Then she wondered, just dimly wondered, why? Why was this necessary? Why had it lifted a great cloud from her and given her peace? Was it real? Was it real? Her tormented modern woman's brain still had no rest. Was it real? And she knew if she gave herself to the man, it was real. But if she kept herself for herself, it was nothing. She was old. Millions of years old, she felt. And at last she could bear the burden of herself no more. She was to be had for the taking to be had for the taking. The man lay in a mysterious stillness. What was he feeling? What was he thinking? She did not know. He was a strange man to her. She did not know him. She must only wait, for she did not dare to break his mysterious Stillness. He lay there with his arms round her, his body on hers, his wet body touching hers, so close and completely unknown, yet not unpeaceful. His very stillness was peaceful. She knew that when at last he roused and drew away from her. It was like an abandonment. He drew her dress in the darkness down over her knees and stood a few moments, apparently adjusting his own clothing. Then he quietly opened the door and went out. She saw a very brilliant little moon shining above the afterglow over the oaks. Quickly she got up and arranged herself. She was tidy. Then she went to the door of the hut. All the lower wood was in shadow, almost darkness. Yet the sky overhead was crystal, but it shed hardly any light. He came through the lower shadow towards her, his face lifted like a pale blotch. Shall we go then, he said. Where? I'll go with you to the gate. He arranged things his own way. He locked the door of the hut and came after her. You aren't sorry, are you? he asked as he went at her side. No, no, are you? she said. For that, no, he said. Then after a while he added, But there's the rest of things. What rest of things, she said. Sir Clifford other folks, all the complications. Why complications, she said, disappointed. It's always so, for you as well as for me. There's always complications. He walked on steadily in the dark. And are you sorry, she said. In a way, he replied, looking up at the sky, I thought I'd done with it all. Now I've begun again. Begun what? Life. Life, she re-echoed with a queer thrill. It's life, he said. There's no keeping clear. And if you do keep clear, you might almost as well die. So if I've got to be broken open again. I have. 
She did not quite see it that way, but still. It's just love, she said cheerfully. Whatever that may be, he replied. They went on through the darkening wood in silence till they were almost at the gate. But you don't hate me, do you? she said wistfully. Nay, nay, he replied, and suddenly he held her fast against his breast again with the old connecting passion. Nay, for me it was good. It was good. Was it for you? Yes, for me too, she answered, a little untruthfully, for she had not been conscious of much. He kissed her softly, softly with the kisses of warmth. If only there weren't so many other people in the world, he said lugubriously. She laughed. They were at the gate to the park. He opened it for her. I won't come any further, he said. No. And she held out her hand, as if to shake hands, but he took it in both his. Shall I come again, she said wistfully. Yes. Yes. She left him and went across the park. He stood back and watched her going into the dark against the pallor of the horizon. Almost with bitterness, he watched her go. She had connected him up again when he had wanted to be alone. She had cost him that bitter privacy of a man who at last wants only to be alone. He turned into the dark of the wood. All was still. The moon had set. But he was aware of the noises of the night, the engines at Stack's gate, the traffic on the main road. Slowly he climbed the denuded knoll. And from the top he could see the country, bright rows of lights at Stack's gate, smaller lights at Teversham Pit the yellow lights of Teversham, and lights everywhere, here and there, on the dark country, with the distant blush of furnaces, faint and rosy. Since the night was clear, the rosiness of the outboring of white-hot metal. Sharp, wicked, electric lights at Stack's gate. An undefinable quick of evil in them, and all the unease, the ever-shifting dread of the industrial night in the Midlands. He could hear the winding engines at Stack's Gate turning down the seven o'clock miners. The pit worked three shifts. He went down again into the darkness and seclusion of the wood, but he knew that the seclusion of the wood was illusory. The industrial noises broke, the solitude, the sharp, lights, though unseen, mocked it. A man could no longer be private and withdrawn. The world allows no hermits. And now he had taken the woman and brought on himself a new cycle of pain and doom, for he knew by experience what it meant. It was not the woman's fault, nor even love's fault, nor the fault of sex. The fault lay there, out there in those evil electric lights and diabolical rattlings of engines. There, in the world of the mechanical, greedy, greedy mechanism and mechanized greed, sparkling with lights and gushing hot metal and roaring with traffic, there lay the vast, evil thing, ready to destroy whatever did not conform. Soon it would destroy the wood, and the bluebells would spring no more. All vulnerable things must perish under the rolling and running of iron.
he thought with infinite tenderness of the woman. Poor forlorn thing, she was nicer than she knew, and, oh, so much too nice for the tough lot she was in contact with. Poor thing, she too had some of the vulnerability of the wild hyacinths. She wasn't all tough rubber goods and platinum like the modern girl. And they would do her in. As sure as life, they would do her in, as they do in all naturally tender life. Tender. Somewhere, she was tender, tender with the tenderness of the growing hyacinths, something that has gone out of the celluloid women of today. But he would protect her with his heart for a little while. For a little while before the insentient iron world and the mammon of mechanized greed did them both in, her as well as him. He went home with his gun and his dog to the dark cottage, lit the lamp, started the fire, and ate his supper of bread and cheese, young onions and beer. He was alone in a silence he loved. His room was clean and tidy, but rather stark. Yet the fire was bright, the hearth white, the petroleum lamp hung bright over the table with its white oilcloth. He tried to read a book about India, but tonight he could not read. He sat by the fire in his shirt sleeves, not smoking, but with a mug of beer in reach. And he thought about Connie. To tell the truth, he was sorry for what had happened, perhaps most for her sake. He had a sense of foreboding. No sense of wrong or sin. He was troubled by no conscience in that respect. He knew that conscience was chiefly fear of society or fear of one's self. He was not afraid of himself. He was quite consciously afraid of society, which he knew by instinct to be a malevolent, partly insane beast. The woman. If she could be there with him and there were nobody else in the world. The desire rose again. His penis began to stir like a live bird. At the same time, an oppression, a dread of exposing himself and her to that outside thing that sparkled viciously in the electric lights, weighed down his shoulders. She poor young thing, was just a young female creature to him, but a young female creature whom he had gone into and whom he desired again. Stretching with the curious yawn of desire, for he had been alone and apart from man or woman for four years, he rose and took his coat again and his gun, lowered the lamp and went out into the starry night with the dog, Driven by desire and by dread of the malevolent thing outside, he made his round in the wood, slowly, softly. He loved the darkness and folded himself into it. It fitted the turgidity of his desire, which, in spite of all, was like a riches the stirring restlessness of his penis, the stirring fire in his loins. Oh, if only there were other men to be with to fight that sparkling electric thing outside there, to preserve the tenderness of life, the tenderness of women, and the natural riches of desire. If only there were men to fight side by side with, but the men were all outside there, glorying in the thing, triumphing or 
being trodden down in the rush of mechanized greed or of greedy mechanism. Constance, for her part, had hurried across the park, home, almost without thinking. As yet, she had no afterthought. She would be in time for dinner. She was annoyed to find the doors fastened, however, so that she had to ring. Mrs. Bolton opened. Why, there you are, your ladyship. I was beginning to wonder if you'd gone lost, she said a little roguishly. Sir Clifford hasn't asked for you, though. He's got Mr. Linley in with him, talking over something. It looks as if he'd stay to dinner, doesn't it, my lady? It does, rather, said Connie. Shall I put dinner back a quarter of an hour? That would give you time to dress in comfort. Perhaps you'd better. Mr. Linley was the general manager of the collieries, an elderly man from the north with not quite enough punch to suit Clifford, not up to post-war conditions nor post-war collieries either, with their canny creed. But Connie liked Mr. Linley, though she was glad to be spared the toadying of his wife. Linley stayed to dinner, and Connie was the hostess men liked so much, so modest, yet so attentive and aware, with big, wide, blue eyes and a soft response that sufficiently hid what she was really thinking. Connie had played this woman so much it was almost second nature to her, but still decidedly second Yet it was curious how everything disappeared from her consciousness while she played it. She waited patiently till she could go upstairs and think her own thoughts. She was always waiting. It seemed to be her forte. Once alone in her room, however, she felt still vague and confused. She didn't know what to think. What sort of a man was he, really? Did he really like her? Not much, she felt. Yet he was kind. There was something, a sort of warm, naive kindness, curious and sudden, that almost opened her womb to him. But she felt he might be kind like that to any woman. Though even so, it was curiously soothing comforting. And he was a passionate man, wholesome and passionate. But perhaps he wasn't quite individual enough. He might be the same with any woman as he had been with her. It really wasn't personal. She was only really a female to him. But perhaps that was better. And after all, he was kind to the female in her, which no man had ever been. Men were very kind to the person she was, but rather cruel to the female, despising her or ignoring her altogether. Men were awfully kind to Constance Reed or to Lady Chatterley. But not to her womb they weren't kind. And he took no notice of Constance or of Lady Chatterley. He just softly stroked her loins or her breasts. She went to the wood next day. It was a gray, still afternoon with the dark green dog's mercury spreading under the hazel copse, and all the trees making a silent effort to open their buds. Today she could almost feel it in her own body, the huge heave of the sap in the massive trees, upwards, up, up to the bud, there to push into the flamey oak leaves, bronze as blood. It was like a ride running turgid upward and spreading 
on the sky. She came to the clearing, but he was not there. She had only half expected him. The pheasant chicks were running lightly abroad, light as insects from the coops where the fellow hens clucked anxiously. Connie sat and watched them and waited. She only waited. Even the chicks she hardly saw. She waited. The time passed with dreamlike slowness, and he did not come. She had only half expected him. He never came in the afternoon. She must go home to tea. But she had to force herself to leave. As she went home, a fine drizzle of rain fell. Is it raining again, said Clifford, seeing her shake her hat. Just drizzle. She poured tea in silence, absorbed in a sort of obstinacy. She did want to see the keeper today, to see if it were really real, if it were really real. Shall I read to you afterwards, said Clifford. She looked at him. Had he sensed something? The spring makes me feel queer. I thought I might rest a little, she said. Just as you like. Not feeling really unwell, are you? No, only rather tired with the spring. Will you have Mrs. Bolton to play something with you? No, I think I'll listen in. She heard the curious satisfaction in his voice. She went upstairs to her bedroom. There she heard the loudspeaker begin to bellow in an idiotically velveteen genteel sort of voice, something about a series of street cries, the very cream of genteel affectation imitating old criers. She put on her old violet-colored Macintosh and slipped out of the house at the side door. The drizzle of rain was like a veil over the world, mysterious, hushed, not cold. She got very warm as she hurried across the park. She had to open her light waterproof. The wood was silent, still, and secret in the evening drizzle of rain, full of the mystery of eggs and half-open buds, half-unsheathed flowers. In the dimness of it all trees glistened naked and dark, as if they had unclothed themselves, and the green things on earth seemed to hum with greenness. There was still no one at the clearing. The chicks had nearly all gone under the mother hens, only one or two last adventurous ones still dibbled about in the dryness under the straw roof shelter, and they were doubtful of themselves. So, he still had not been. He was staying away on purpose, or perhaps something was wrong. Perhaps she should go to the cottage and see. But she was born to wait. She opened the hut with her key. It was all tidy, the corn put in the bin, the blankets folded on the shelf, the straw neat in a corner, a new bundle of straw. The hurricane lamp hung on a nail. The table and chair had been put back where she had lain. She sat down on a stool in the doorway. How still everything was. The fine rain blew very softly, filmily, but the wind made no noise. Nothing made any sound. The trees stood like Powerful beings, dim, twilight, silent and alive. How alive everything was. 
The night was drawing near again. She would have to go. He was avoiding her. But suddenly he came striding into the clearing in his black oilskin jacket like a chauffeur, shining with wet. He glanced quickly at the hut, half saluted, then veered aside and went on to the coops. There he crouched in silence, looking carefully at everything, then carefully shutting the hens and chicks up safe against the night. At last he came slowly towards her. She still sat on her stool. He stood before her under the porch. You come then, he said, using the intonation of the dialect. Yes, she said, looking up at him. You're late. I, he replied, looking away into the wood. She rose slowly, drawing aside her stool. Did you want to come in, she asked. He looked down at her shrewdly. Won't folks be thinking something? You come in here every night, he said. Why? She looked up at him at a loss. I said I'd come. Nobody knows. They soon will, though, he replied. And what then? She was at a loss for an answer. Why should they know, she said. Folks always does, he said fatally. Her lip quivered a little. Well, I can't help it, she faltered. Nay, he said. You can help it by not coming if you want to, he added in a lower tone. But I don't want to, she murmured. He looked away into the wood and was silent. But what when folks finds out, he asked at last. Think about it. Think how lowered you'll feel, one of your husband's servants. She looked up at his averted face. Is it, she stammered, is, is it that you don't want me? Think, he said, think. What if folks find out Sir Clifford and, a, and everybody talking? Well, I can go away. Where to? Anywhere. I've got money of my own. My mother left me 20,000 pounds in trust, and I know Clifford can't touch it. I can go away. But Appen, you don't want to go away. Yes, yes, I don't care what happens to me. Aye, you think that, but you'll care. You'll have to care. Everybody has. You've got to remember your ladyship is carrying on with a gamekeeper. It's not as if I was a gentleman. Yes, you'd care. You'd care. I shouldn't. What do I care about my ladyship? I hate it, really. I feel people are jeering every time they say it, and they are. They are. Even you jeer when you say it. Me? For the first time, he looked straight at her and into her eyes. I don't jeer at you, he said. As he looked into her eyes, she saw his own eyes go dark, quite dark, the pupils dilating. Don't you care about all the risk, he asked in a husky voice. You should care. Don't care when it's too late. There was a curious warning pleading in his voice. But I've nothing to lose, she said fretfully. If you knew what it is, you'd think I'd be glad to lose it. But are you afraid for yourself? I, he said briefly, I am. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of things. What things, she asked. He gave a curious backward jerk of his head, indicating the outer world. Things, everybody, the lot of them. Then he bent down and suddenly kissed her unhappy face.
Nay, I don't care, he said. Let's have it and damn the rest. But if you was to feel sorry you'd ever done it... Don't put me off, she pleaded. He put his fingers to her cheek and kissed her again suddenly. Let me come in then, he said softly, and take off your Macintosh. He hung up his gun, slipped out of his wet leather jacket, and reached for the blankets. I brought another blanket, he said, so we can put one over us if you like. I can't stay long. Dinner is half past seven. He looked at her swiftly, then at his watch. All right, he said. He shut the door and lit a tiny light in the hanging hurricane lamp. One time we'll have a long time, he said. He put the blankets down carefully, one folded for her head. Then he sat down a moment on the stool and drew her to him, holding her close with one arm, feeling for her body with his free hand. She heard the catch of his intaken breath as he found her. Under her frail petticoat, she was naked. Eh, what it is to touch thee, he said, as his finger caressed the delicate, warm, secret skin of her waist and hips. He put his face down and rubbed his cheek against her belly and against her thighs again and again. And again she wondered a little over the sort of rapture it was to him. She did not understand the beauty he found in her through touch upon her living secret body, almost the ecstasy of beauty. For passion alone is awake to it. And when passion is dead or absent, then the magnificent throb of beauty is incomprehensible and even a little despicable. Warm, live beauty of contact, so much deeper than the beauty of vision. She felt the glide of his cheek on her thighs and belly and buttocks and the close brushing of his mustache and his soft, thick hair and her knees began to quiver. Far down in her she felt a new stirring, a new nakedness emerging. And she was half afraid, half she wished he would not caress her so. He was encompassing her somehow, yet she was waiting, waiting. And when he came into her with an intensification of relief and consummation that was pure peace to him. Still, she was waiting. She felt herself a little left out, and she knew, partly, it was her own fault. She willed herself into this separateness. Now, perhaps, she was condemned to it. She lay still, feeling his motion within her, his deep-sunk intentness, the sudden quiver of him at the springing of his seed, and then the slow subsiding thrust, that thrust of the buttocks. Surely it was a little ridiculous. If you were a woman, and a part in all the business, surely that thrusting of the man's buttocks was supremely ridiculous. Surely the man was intensely ridiculous in this posture and this act. But she lay still without recoil. Even when he had finished, she did not rouse herself to get a grip on her own satisfaction as she had done with Michaelis. She lay still, and the tears slowly filled and ran from her eyes. He lay still, too, but he held her close and tried to cover her poor naked legs with his legs to keep them warm. He lay on her with a close, undoubting warmth. Are you cold? he asked in a soft, small voice, as if she were close, so close, whereas she was left out, distant, 
No, but I must go, she said gently. He sighed, held her closer, then relaxed to rest again. He had not guessed her tears. He thought she was there with him. I must go. I must go, she repeated. He lifted himself, kneeled beside her a moment, kissed the inner side of her thighs, then drew down her skirts, buttoning his own clothes, unthinking, not even turning aside in the faint, faint light from the lantern. The man come to the cottage one time, he said, looking down at her with a warm, sure, easy face. But she lay there, inert, and was gazing up at him, thinking, Stranger, stranger. She even resented him a little. He put on his coat and looked for his hat, which had fallen. Then he slung on his gun. Come then, he said, looking down at her with those warm, peaceful sort of eyes. She rose slowly. She didn't want to go. She also rather resented staying. He helped her with her thin waterproof and saw she was tidy. Then he opened the door. The outside was quite dark. The faithful dog under the porch stood up with pleasure seeing him. The drizzle of rain drifted grayly past upon the darkness. It was quite dark. I'm going to take the lantern, he said. There'll be nobody. He walked just before her in the narrow path, swinging the hurricane lamp low, revealing the wet grass, the black, shiny tree roots like snakes, wan flowers. For the rest, all was gray rain mist and complete darkness. The man come to the cottage one time, he said, Shelter, we might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb. It puzzled her, this queer, persistent wanting her, when there was nothing between them, when he never really spoke to her, and in spite of herself she resented the dialect. His, the Muncombe, seemed not addressed to her, but some common woman. She recognized the foxglove leaves of the riding and knew more or less where they were. It's quarter past seven, he said. You'll do it. He had changed his voice, seemed to feel her distance. As they turned the last bend in the riding towards the hazel wall and the gate, he blew out the light. We'll see from here, he said, taking her gently by the arm. But it was difficult. The earth under their feet was a mystery, but he felt his way by tread. He was used to it. At the gate he gave her his electric torch. It's a bit brighter in the park, he said, but take it for fear you get off the path. It was true, there seemed a ghost glimmer of grayness in the open space of the park. He suddenly drew her to him and whipped his hand under her dress again, feeling her warm body with his wet, chill hand. I could die for the touch of a woman like thee, he said in his throat. If thou would stop another minute. She felt the sudden force of his wanting her again. No, I must run, she said a little wildly. I, he replied, suddenly changed, letting her go. She turned away, and on the instant she turned back to him, saying... Kiss me. He bent over her indistinguishable and kissed her on the left eye. She held her mouth and he softly kissed it, but at once drew away. He hated mouth kisses. I'll come tomorrow, she said, drawing away. If I can, she added. I... Not so late, he replied out of the darkness. 
Already she could not see him at all. Good night. Good night, your ladyship, his voice. She stopped and looked back into the wet dark. She could just see the bulk of him. Why did you say that, she said. Nay, he replied. Good night, then. Run. She plunged on in the dark gray tangible night. She found the side door open and slipped into her room unseen. As she closed the door, the gong sounded, but she would take her bath all the same. She must take her bath. But I won't be late anymore, she said to herself. It's too annoying. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.